All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another uh, broadcast of the Creating Structure podcast. Today, my esteemed guest, I want to say, esteemed guest is John Marks of Form 4 Architecture. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. It's a great pleasure. Uh, Tom Moore recommended that you be on the show with Julie Taylor, um, Inc. And uh, I couldn't be more pleased in some of our preliminary discussions. Um, I'm going to uh, take the liberty to do a little bit bigger introduction because I think it will serve the audience well in knowing more about your background. Ladies and gentlemen, we're really privileged to be able to get into the mind of an architect of note who has worked nationally and internationally. So I want to introduce John. John's an Illinois native, and he's the co-founding partner and chief artistic officer at the San Francisco firm Form 4 Architecture. The firm is best known for shaping the all-amenity tech campus concept in the Silicon Valley. John also designed the area's first all-electric net positive office building. Philosophically, John is a proponent of what he calls second century modernism. He also paints, writes poetry, serves on the board of the San Francisco Art Institute, and designs Burning Man installations. We love hearing about that. He's convinced that outside artistic pursuits are mandatory to keep architects' work fresh. He advocates for the inclusion of philosophy, art, and poetry in the thoughtful making of place. Keenly aware that architecture is a balancing act between self-expression and collaboration, he uses the compelling power of form to create emotionally resonant architecture and urban spaces. In addition, John is a part-time student of what he calls absurdity, paradox, and kindness. Can't wait to hear more about that. He's widely lectured on topics of design, placemaking, emotional meaning, and cultural vibrancy in Silicon Valley, and places as diverse as Korea, Italy, Austria, Australia, Canada, and the Technion in Israel. John's published over 100 national and international uh, publications in, in those publications, including writing for Architectural Review, Architects newspaper, which, by the way, is a is a uh, they're the folks behind Facades Plus Architects newspaper, mm-hmm. um, Architect Magazine, Arcade, Form Magazine, Architectural Record, Arts, Architecture, and Arc Daily. There's more, but we want to hear from John, not from me. John, again, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. So with that, though, you grew up or were born in the Midwest. So it says you were born in Illinois. So talk about that. Um, where were you born in Illinois? How long did you live there? And talk about uh, where you went to school. Well, I was born in Champaign-Urbana, actually. My father was getting his PhD in economics at the okay. time um, with a famous name, actually. And um, his name was famous. Um and then we moved across the state. So I grew up in a university town, but it was a small farming town as well. So I, I got like the best of small town America, but with the sense of the outside world and, and, and an intellectual um, um, balance to, to sort of those Midwestern values. Um, but the Midwestern values are interesting, you know, with, with hard work and, and dedication and, and focus. And, you know, that served me well, I think, um, um, aesthetically and culturally, you know, I had to kind of develop that outside of that, but, but I went back to school at Champaign-Urbana and then moved to San Francisco in the early eighties and, you know, never regretted that and, and sort of have been here since then. 
That's great. So you spent your whole life growing up in Illinois and then going to University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking prior that another one of our esteemed guests, Patrick McClamey from HOK, he, he went to University of Illinois as well. Great school. Um, in fact, another one of our guests, I think, yeah, Mick Patterson, he has a degree in industrial design from University of Illinois. So quite a prolific place. Well, when I was going to school there, one in 12 of the registered architects in the United States had gone through the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. That, that's that's a, how big and how long serving the school was and how the, the people that graduated stuck around in the profession. So I don't think it's quite that high right now. That's an amazing fact. I did not know that. That is substantial. Was there anything in your childhood that led you to the place of art? And architecture, anything that that really drove that path? Well, I, I actually wanted to be an artist first, and and I think um, sometimes I tell people my my design process is backwards, and so I have to kind of do full disclosure, and we talk about how it might be different and how they have to adjust to it, um, because I in in many ways I I look at it as a painter first, and not that I'm just solely solving a graphic problem, but but that it's about emotional meaning and it's about um, composition and form and beauty and how that relates to people. In addition to the, the fundamentals of architecture that are so important. But when I was seven years old, uh, I decided I wanted to be an architect and they had some little like career day thing at school when I was very young and it was like doctor, lawyer, fireman, you know, all these different things. And, and they were interesting, but I wasn't that interested in them until mm-hmm. they got they got to engineer. And I thought, well, engineers kind of interesting. You get to build things. It kind of sounds creative, but not quite it. And then the next page was architect. And it was like that aha epiphany moment where you say, this would work. Because in the Midwest, and my parents didn't do this, but but the culture in the Midwest was sort of like being an artist is not a proper way to make a living. <laughs> and so, so I felt like, you know, that would be too self-indulgence, but, it, but to be an architect would be something else. Uh, I didn't really know what it meant to be an architect until I actually went to college. I mean, you know, vaguely, you know, design buildings, participate in building things, but I didn't really know until I went to, um, to school. And then I completely fell in love with it in school. And, um, but I've, I've stayed in that sense of being an artist um, started with, with more of the visual arts and I, I used to write poetry in, in college. And then now I'm probably be more of a poet than a visual artist. So, I mean, you know, just in terms of the amount of time I spend on different things. So, um, but, but that idea of that creative spirit and the different outlets that you have for it, I think is important. And architecture is such a, a patient profession or, or a patient art form. You, you have to wait years for it to get completed. So there's the love of the process, which we all tend to love, but, but, but to get that gratification of the building being built and people coming back to you and saying, I really, you know, was moved by your, your design that takes years and years to happen. So in the meantime, you know, if, if you have a creative spirit, you need, you need some sort of outlet. And that goes back to that quote we were talking about, um, art is the act of sharing your humanity with others through a creative medium. And, and that, that to me, that's what artists 
feel what they want to do. They want that there's something they need to say and they have no choice. A lot of artists I've talked to, it's like, it's not a choice to be an artist. It's, it's a calling and it, and it can be a curse. Um, but it's a, it's, it's, it's also a blessing, but it's not a choice. You, you have to do it. Um, it's not a casual thing. And the same thing with me, I have to do something expressive. So, so to get those shorter things, writing poetry is really interesting because you write poetry. I just wrote a poem about a friend who did something amazing. And she said, the poem made her cry. Um, and I'd love it if, if I, if I had that response from the architecture that I do, but I don't live in all the buildings, you know, people might respond that way, but I don't feel it on a day-to-day basis, but I do get that from poetry. So it's a balance. Yeah, that's terrific. So I want everybody to hear that again, that, uh, John's working definition of art again, he said, is an act of sharing your humanity with others through a creative or expressive medium. And mm-hmm. you consider both, you consider the visual arts and poetry, writing. Architecture, ex- sculpture, visual, music. music. I mean, it's all, there, it's such a wide range. Quilting, yeah. cooking. I mean, there's so many things that are creative and expressive in its own way. And they're, they're ways to, 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 to share your humanity. When people cook for each other, they're sharing a bit of their soul. Amen you know? to that. When you write a poem, though, it's very, very fragile. You know, you're very vulnerable, especially, you know, when you're beginning, you know, to do it or, or drawing something. And, you know, people are going to be critical and they're going to like it or they don't like it. And you can discuss the meaning of it and all this kind of stuff. But you're, you're, you're very vulnerable at that point. And, of course, when you've been doing it as long as I have, you, you, you still have that vulnerability, but you're a little more self-confident. But you don't want to get so self-confident that that you lose your self-doubt. I think I am Pei was famously quoted as saying, the moment you lose your self-doubt as a designer, you're done. Because you think you're infallible. You don't try hard enough. I mean, the first idea is never great. You know, I usually go through a cycle of I have a whole bunch of ideas and I think they're all horrible. And then it's like, oh, this is I I, I can't live with this. I can do better than this. And I really push myself to do better than whatever it was that I came up with. And when I have the time to do that, that's when the extraordinary things happen. Now, sometimes it's me pushing it. Sometimes the client rejects everything or my partner rejects everything. And, and, and I'm in a situation where it's like, what am I going to do with this? You know, I, 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 every time there's a rejection, it's an opportunity to do something better. So I don't see it as I've failed because there's so many ways to design something. There's so many ways to express that essence of your humanity. Um, just getting another opportunity is the great part. Yeah, that's a really great attitude about it. Um, wow. Vulnerability is indeed the key in expressing all types of art. I find it particularly true in writing, though. I, I was listening to a writer um, who has written some very vulnerable, revealing stuff. And she said, um, if you want to be a good writer, write something that'll make your friends uncomfortable. If you want to be a great writer, write something that'll make yourself uncomfortable. Mm, and, I like that. That's, yeah. That I think is quite, um, because that, that can be hard sometimes. It can. Um, and, and to have appropriate vulnerability, mm-hmm. whether we're expressing in writing or in design. So you said you, you were more into the visual arts early, but you wrote poetry in college too. Um, 
did you take art classes in high school? Is it important for an architect to take art classes or did, did I you took, not? I took, you know, four years of art classes in, in high school. Um, in the Midwest, it was interesting because when I was in junior high, the shop teacher, we had, we had you know, gender specific classes back then. And so we took shop and, and the next year you could, you could have an option. The first year you took shop one semester and art the other semester. And he was trying to convince all the young boys that men took shop and girls took art. And he was so <laughs> proud that the year before he'd convinced all the young boys to really be men and not, not elect to take the art class. Wow. And I'm like, I'm taking the art class. I don't care what you say. Wow. So, um, but, but, you know, it was interesting, you know, back, back in the day, I mean, this would have been back in the sixties. Um, but I took, you know, I took art in, in, in high school and, um, I didn't take art classes in college. I would say that I'm, I'm largely self-taught, um, except for some of the things that I got out of art class, you know, some of the fundamentals, but I think most all artists are self-taught to a degree back in the day when I was in college, um, going to art school was not considered to be a prerequisite to being an artist. Now going and get a, getting an MFA, you know, having a pedigree, having a resume. I mean, you wouldn't have a resume back in the old days as an artist, you would have art and you would, the art would, would stand on its own. So it's, it's interesting how that group has changed and become more professional quote unquote. Uh, versus what it was, you know, back in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the same could be said for a number of things. So you're giving us some good background about, you know, what drives you. Um, one more question on the poetry for now. How do you feel uh, just, just the act of that self-expression through poetry helps stimulate your creative thought, or does it somehow connect you as an architect in a different way to how you think through buildings and building typology. Is there a connection there somehow between the poetry and the expression of the building medium? Well, there, there's, there's two aspects to it. One is design process and the other is intention in terms of what the building does. So when I write a poem, the intention is to use words to, to transfer an emotion that I'm trying to express. That's, that's the, the sharing my humanity part. And, and I want it to be emotionally engaging. So as an intention, that has not always been in the last 50 years, an intention of modernist architecture. It's been, it's been less about that emotional engagement and more about problem solving, more about um, technology, more about the basics and, and not about the quirky human aspect, the arbitrariness that you might find in a poem. And, and the emotional connection, the human to human connection. The buildings are more machined, they're more, um, they're more specific. Um, now, what, what I do when I talk about emotional meaning and second century modernism is I differentiate between um, poetic minimalism and non-poetic minimalism. So if you look at the watercolors that I do, many of them are very minimalistic. And poetry is the act, in essence, is a very minimalist act. It's a very reductivist act. You're trying to get down to the most efficient use of words. And if there's one extra word, you, you could spend hours trying to just get that word to go away or, or make sure that it's, it's essential. And it's that balance between there's nothing left to take away and there's nothing left to add, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the sweet spot. It's not 
one of those things. It's both of those things. So, so the, the dilemma I have is in poetry, it's always been about emotional engagement, even though it's a reductivist approach. In architecture, we have the reductivist approach, but by taking humanity out of it, we have a lot, a lot, a lot of non-poetic minimalism. And it's soul-sucking. So, mm-hmm. so I'm a great admirer of poetic minimalism, but if that poetry's gone, you might as well be doing, you're better off doing Toscana that touches people's hearts than just doing empty minimalist modernism. Well, that's well said. Um, now, I don't want people to do that. I don't want them to go backwards, but let's try to do poetic minim, uh, minimalism. Let's try to have emotional engagement in our buildings. And so hence, you know, the concept of lovable buildings, the concept of, of, of some kind of engagement. And it's, and it's a tricky thing because we've, we've lost the language to do that. And I think we had it a hundred years ago, but we started losing it about 50 years ago. Yeah. So let's, let's stay with that thought. You you made the statement that um, we need to create buildings that are lovable and that resonate with people. This is what you're referring to. I think it's been missing for 50 years or so Um, Mm -hmm. that we've trained ourselves out of buildings that people can love. And then you, you talked about sustainability and I want to see how this transfers to your designs and how we can draw from that and learn as engineers and as constructors. You said the most sustainable things in life are those things you will not throw away because you love them too much to try to create emotional meeting and emotional connection, including buildings. How do we do that? How do you do that as an architect? How do we contribute to that? How can so, we? So, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, is um, you know, I, I've, I've lectured on this. Uh, I usually start with the idea of, you, you, you know, here we're talking about beauty today in this talk. And some of you might feel that it's superficial. The, the world's on fire. You know, we need to solve a lot of technical problems, a lot of sustainability issues and things like that. And then I say, you know, those things are all important. And I talk about how many hundreds of thousands of square feet of lead platinum we've done, how many millions of square feet of lead gold we've done and you know, all those technical things. And then I hit them with that quote that you just gave. And, and, and then it resonates. Then they sort of get the connection because as human beings, we are capable of loving things. And I think when I have that discussion and I really get into it, I say, this goes all the way back to Descartes. And Descartes said, I think therefore I am. Mm-hmm. And we interpreted that to mean that, that thinking was the highest order of human achievement. And I wrote a paper for Burning Man on, on robots. And I said, you know, if, if you were gonna have a Turing test about, about robots, about what it means to be human or, or to be a machine, you know, I think therefore I am, but, but robots can think, right? Robots can make decisions and sometimes better than humans. And so, so I sort of reject that as the definition of what it means to be human and what differentiates you from a robot or a machine. I think it's more, I started with, I feel therefore I am, but I don't think feeling went far enough. I think it's, I care, therefore I am. Humans are capable of caring. There's something at stake. There's some an emotional aspect of it. And it's our ability to care, not our ability to process information that differentiates us. And so caring about the environment, caring about community, caring about each other is an emotional exchange. And if our buildings, if our environment doesn't give us emotional um, support, if buildings aren't hopeful and welcoming and lovable, 
then you know what's going to happen. It's just a gray world that no one's going to have any emotional investment in. There's so, nothing to love. Well, thank you for that. That is, that's rich. How do you do that then? Yeah, you, how do we do that? So as, that's the thing. as you go about as you go about a commission, as you're looking at a building, where does it start? Where do you start in creating that sustainable emotional meaning and connection? with an owner, for an owner, for a constituency. Um, I'm fascinated. Well, and there's, there's a in combination that. of things. One is you have to listen to the client. And if you have the opportunity to listen to the user group or the community, those things are really critical. And you have to absorb all of that. You have to pull all that in. The dilemma is you can't do everything. So if you get a thousand comments, you can't accommodate a thousand comments. There's a curatorial process there where you have to group things, you have to prioritize things, you have to, in a sense, what I tell people sometimes, and they get aghast at this, is you have to listen, 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 and then forget everything. And they go, oh my God, you can't forget everything. I mean, no, you forget everything rationally, and you, you develop an emotional map of what you feel the community feels. And, and then you try to build up from there. Like, what would make them happy? And that's an emotional thing. It's not a rational thing. It's, it, it is in a case of, you know, like a lot of disadvantaged communities, the number one thing they always want is a grocery store. That's, that's an objective thing that's easy to solve. But if the grocery store is, 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 doesn't feel safe, if it doesn't feel welcoming, if it doesn't feel all these things, you know, so then the community has a sense. So, so, so stylistically, there's this aspect of how do you find the appropriate style for that? But I mean, you know, and this is the notion of style to begin with, right? Um, and if you say, well, no, it can be a modernist thing, but how do you make it rich and welcoming and, and hopeful? And I think in the old days, we used to do that. In the old days as architect artists, we used to have that emotional overlay. And we've sort of, we've sort of taken that out a bit and, and we, we focus on objective criteria. So we live in a world that is linear, logical, and verbal. And we use that as a way to determine whether or not you know, a building is successful. But there's the nonlinear, visual, intuitive, emotional side of that. That's a creative process. The other one is a thought process. Mm -hmm. and, and if we live 95% in the linear, logical, verbal world, you know, we, we don't tend to um, embrace that. So you know, sometimes I'll design something or someone will be helping me in designing something. And, and, and it's a little quirky. It's a little personal. It's a little you know, special. Uh, a lot of our clients say, no, you can't do that. It's not timeless. Timeless is another word for, you know, the mediocre. The mediocre doesn't mean that it's average. The mediocre for me means that it, it, it's not remarkable. So you can design something so that 90% of the people absolutely passionately love it, but 10% will hate it. That's one way to do it right? That means it can be quirky as long as it's a quirky thing that people will love, right? <laughs> um, what most of the time we do is we try to design buildings that no one will hate. And that's a completely uh, different equation. What no one will hate is what no one will remark on. No, it's so bland that no one would, 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 would have an opinion on it. That's the only way to make it so no one will hate it. It, it's a anyway. It's a completely different uh, point of view. So timeless usually means there's nothing there to remark upon. Therefore, there's nothing to hate. The thing is that's such a low bar. 
Yeah, that's uh, I love that. Uh, there's nothing not to hate. That's like one time I asked a, a person I worked with, I, I said, do you play to win or do you play not to lose? Yeah, there you go. And there you go. Playing, playing, if you play not to lose, you can't win. Right. If you play to win, you either win or you lose and you go down in flames. But either way, you create a so you're talking about the middle, that that dastardly middle where it's lukewarm, it's not hot or cold. It's it doesn't and inspire that I think any is the emotion. Worst part of our so so the architectural review had this notion, and they started with the word utopia, right? And utopia is like this idyllic place that everything is wonderful and everybody's happy and everything is beautiful, right? And then the the opposite of of utopia is dystopia, where it's gray and angry and mean and 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 brutal, right? Well, they said basically that's not the thing we fear the most. That's still got emotional engagement. That still is different. It's it's like you want to get out of poverty, but but at least there's something there. The difference is notopia. Notopia is it's so bland that that there's no point in living there. And that's different than dystopia. Dystopia is actually something you can emotionally engage with, you can react against. But notopia is it's so bland, you just basically walk around like a zombie. Yeah. Well we create said. so much zombie architecture. <laughs> there's so- a quote for you. <laughs> zombie, zombie architecture. I love it. So in the rational, logical, verbal, like assessment, are you mentioned quirky and is that in creating buildings that have emotional meaning, emotional connection, is, is that what it's about? Is that where you're working with an owner, a client, a constituency to, to put a small touch, a, a specific flair? Well, it could be a small touch or a big touch. I mean, it's like you could, you could, you could put an angle in the roof and that could be quite dramatic. You know, so so I remember um, uh, growing up and, and you know seeing hi- historicist buildings right on on the campus at the University of Illinois. Well, there was a lot of fabric in the buildings. It was a Georgian campus, so you had a lot of you know similar repetitive windows and coins on the corner and you know a cornice. But what what was interesting about it, and that had a human scale, was there was they tried to do one thing. If it was just the entrance, and the entrance was you know had hand carved detail to it. It had a specialness. It had a uniqueness. I mean, the, there's the lovable issue, but then there's the, how would you differentiate a building from another building? So if you had, you know, four modernist buildings on a block and, and aside from the address number or the location, it's the second from the left. If you were going to say, you know, describe the building so I know which building to go to. And if there's nothing to describe, you know, you failed the lowest bar which mm. is that the, the blandness has at least some little thing like a red door, but a red door on itself is not that, I mean, it can be lovable depending on what the other colors are, right? Because it could be like a painting, but in general, just changing the color of the door, you know, that's the thing is like, what differentiates the four buildings on the campus? Well, one's blue, one's green, one's yellow, one's, that's not enough. We, we did a design recently um, called Innovation Curve where there's, there's colored glass and there's a purple building, a yellow building, a, a red building, and a blue building of, of glass color. But that alone is not enough to make it exciting, you know, to give you emotional uplift. Um, you know, so, so if you can't describe the differences between, you know, different buildings that are designed by different architects, if there's nothing remarkable, then yeah, you're down at that lower bar. 
And then there's and then no... if you can get to lovability, but lovability is interesting. When you challenge people with lovability and you say, tell me what is literally lovable about that, something that you would stake, you know, they there, there's a couple of things that happen. When you talk to architects, they give you give you a professional rationale behind it. They can talk about history, they can talk about this and that, what the architect was trying to do. If you talk to non-architects, they they kind of go, well, I don't know. They they think that they're not smart enough to have an opinion. And I say, oh no, if if it's there, it's not there. You know in two seconds whether there's something you love about it. So if it's not there, just say it's not there. You know, don't think that the architect is smarter than you are because they actually aren't. We're all we're all pretty much the same in terms of intelligence, right? Um, I mean, you know, there's people with a little bit more and there's people with a little bit less, but, you know, compared to other animals and, and, and living things on the, on the planet, you know, we're in our own little category here. Um, I, I, I love that about you. And we, I'm going to bookmark it and, and ask, yeah, about, yeah, 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 no, yeah. no, I'm going to ask about second century modernism, but I'm going to come back to that because I love that about you that many of us are honestly, many of us are intimidated to sit in a room with a, a preeminent, well-known, well-versed architect, design architect. Um, but I love how you work to really identify with and give meaning to all categories of people and all categories of creative. We'll come back to that. There's a what I call a range of cultural inclusion, yeah. A range of culture, yes. Yeah. So, Talk to us a little bit more about second century modernism. I think you're discussing it, but you're a proponent of what you call second century modernism. And yeah. I want us to understand from your perspective, what is second century modernism? So, so um, I write a lot with a fellow um, called named uh, Pierluigi Serino. And Pierluigi wrote a, a beautiful book on the work of the photographer, Julia Schulman, and some other books. Um, he wrote one on Ezra Stoller as well. And, um, you know, so he, he specializes in photographers. The nice thing about photographers is you get a treasure trove of buildings from all over the place. But anyway, um, it, it dawned on us, we were talking about emotional meaning and we were talking about how to make progress and how to, how to define something that people could understand. And, um, and we, we started with an exhibition in 2016 at the Venice Biennale on visual poetry. So that was the beginning of it. And we co-wrote a bunch of stuff together on visual poetry and we had visual poems there on the ex exhibition. Two years later, they said, could you come back and do something else? And so we were trying to figure out what that was. And, and we were trying to grapple with this idea of architects haven't been allowed to design beautiful buildings in the last 50 years and how has modernism changed? And it dawned on us, this was around 2018 and two and. 1919 was the founding of the Bauhaus in Germany. Okay. And, and it dawned on us that it's been about a hundred years of modernism. And wouldn't this be a moment in 2018 at the, at the Biennale to point this out and say, how have we done? So we started this notion of first century modernism and that the future would be second century modernism. Then it was the question of, well, what does that mean? Because here's here we've opened the door to the uncharted future of a new era of architecture. You know, always that question. And, and of course, we can't provide the answer. We can only provide the context for talking about it. Like we can't say it's, it's, it's a Gothic revival, which is what happened, you know, way back when. And that's how we got the Houses of Parliament, because they said, no, not neoclassicism. 
It needs to be Gothic revival, right? We don't have that answer. We have a different question and a different answer. So the, the issue then is we said, okay, what's first century modernism? And, and I think for me, you know, first century modernism is an architecture of abstraction. And I think if you talk to a diehard modernist, they'd say, yeah, sure. You know, that's a fair assessment of what, of what the process of modern architecture is all about. And I think that that notion of, of abstraction, of reductivist minimalism, of, of the way that the linear logical verbal way that we're looking at things, abstraction isn't a very appropriate word. It's not an emotional word. It's a very scientific word. It's a very pragmatic word. And it, and it describes kind of what we do, especially in a reductivist process. So then I said, hmm, what could second century modernism be? And we came up with second century modernism could be an architecture of emotional abundance. Started with just the word abundance. And then everybody that I was giving a lecture to kept saying, well, abundance, do you mean like, like reckless self-indulgence and just expensive things? And I said, no, it has nothing to do with cost. It has to do with what's in your heart. Mm -hmm. And if buildings reach out to your heart, that's, that's emotional abundance. And so we decided to change it slightly and say emotional abundance rather than just wealthiness. I understand that. I think I understand the essence of what you're saying there. I like that it, it can, it's about emotional abundance. Um, so, so imagine if you had, you know, people focusing on emotional abundance is mm -hmm. one of the primary criteria for whether or not a building was successful. That's a huge shift. Just, just so, so it's not like we want to tell people how to do that in terms of use this style or use, do this thing. It's more about just changing an entire paradigm of what's important and what criteria. And, and so what we do is there's, there's a, a talk I gave and I, 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 I wrote a poem as part of the talk um, for an award we won, you know, sort of the acceptance speech. And I, and, I, and I talked about minimalism and lack of poetry. And, and, and uh, I said, we could debate the causal um, aspects of, of that in terms of minimalist modernism. Um, but fundamentally, have we exhausted the conceit yet that the public needs to merely catch up? Mm -hmm. And architects have been in this notion that started with impressionist painting that the public just needs to catch up. Like we know better if only they fell in love with non-poetic minimalism like we have as a profession. If only they would do that, life would be good. Mm -hmm. And, and the thing that we've discovered is maybe the public is never going to catch up because maybe we took too much humanity out of our design process and out of the buildings that we design, that they're never going to love it. And we stop listening. We stop caring about them. Thank you. That's, boy, that is humble and beautiful all at the same time. So as chief creative officer, co-founder of Form well, 4. Well, chief artistic officer, we actually, I'm sorry, we chief actually artistic. decided to push it a little further. The I polite like that. thing, chief creative officer would be would be like, like a, one of my publicists keeps changing it back at the beginning to like chief creative officer because it seemed more respectable. But what we did was we intentionally said artistic because we wanted to push it a little bit. We wanted to say, don't discount this like we discount the word beauty. Thanks for that correction. You're right. Chief artistic yeah. officer. That is important. And words that to your point are important. 
So as chief artistic officer for form four, how, how do you manifest those thoughts, philosophies on a daily, weekly basis in your work, in your design? Are there any examples of that? Well, so what happens is, you know, you start with, with this, you know, you, what, what I start with in the design process is goes back to, you know, like the poetry part of the design process, but um, I start with doing the math, right? So it's listening to the clients, listening to the community, it's listening to users. If you have access to all of those things, it, and then it's about the program and trying to figure out, you start with what fits on the site. And I, and I don't start with necessarily at that point in time, what's the big concept idea. And I start seeing it's more of a formal thing. So I start with, with listening, then I go to form and I start just kind of like playing around a little bit just to see what fits, what the opportunities are. And then, because if you start with concept alone, a lot of times you spend a lot of time on that and then you discover that the concept doesn't fit the, the form. I mean, it doesn't fit the site. It doesn't fit the program. It doesn't fit this. It doesn't fit the community, but you've got this thing you've locked into and now you're on, you know, a mission from God to make sure that it happens <laughs> and that you lose flexibility there. Right. So some, so what I found is that I start with, you know, again, listening, listening starts the idea of what the concept should be. Then I play around with form. So I have a sense of what's possible, what the potentials of the site are. And then I start to meld them and push them and pull them. And so we start getting ideas that we can be reduced to words. And you can say the building is about being a flower. It's about a swirl. It's about, you know, a different shapes. But then you might discover that they don't work, but the, that there's an intention there that you can modify mm -hmm. from a, a swirl to a, an arc, right? And suddenly the arc works better than the swirl. Or, or the swirl gives you an idea for a concept that's more important. So you start with the, the form of a swirl and you realize in the case of falling lotus blossoms, which is this 4 million square foot IT park we did in Pune, India, it turns out it's the national flower of India. Wow. It didn't start being designed to be a representation of, this is what, pe what people in the rational world called post-rationalization. If you're in the artistic world and the idea is you start designing forms and you come up with this thing that's sort of like a flower, and when you're done, you say, oh, this is interesting. It's the national flower of India. And if you say, well, that's invalid because you didn't come up with the idea first. Those are people that live in that singular mm -hmm. linear, logical, verbal world. Yeah. If you live in the artist world, you have no idea what's percolating in your psyche, right? Yeah. There's so many things that are there that aren't necessarily reduced to words that come out during the process. So post-rationalization is a perfectly acceptable and embraced notion in the artistic world. But for I, some reason, architects find that even being remotely arbitrary is one of the greatest sins <laughs> that you could do. And arbitrariness for me is the thing that makes really interesting and great buildings is that quirky thing that's human. Versus the machine that's perfect. I, I like that. I I said to my partner here, I said, I don't, to your point, I said, I don't think linearly so much as I think in overlapping concentric circles or spheres. Yes. And I can't even exactly. describe that different things connect to different. And that's part of the creative process. Um, so that is, that's a great example. Many in our audience, if we could just, 
segue for one second. Um, if it's, if this is fair or not, let me know. So many yeah. in our audience are glass and glazing professionals, exterior facade, total enclosure systems, and, and they deeply value being able to sit down with an architect once they've gotten into schematic design and saying, how can I help create your expression for the exterior wall in a tangible way? So mm -hmm. can you, can you just help us? Can you talk like, how does that aesthetic, this, the building skin, how, how do you focus on well, that? When do I you think, focus on yeah. that? So, so in terms of emotional meaning, you know, you need, you need a toolkit, right? You need things that you can work with. And, and there's been some things recently that are really quite extraordinary that are very, very helpful. Um, so, so in some ways, you know, you've got stylistic variations in historicist architecture, but they all create shape and shadow, shade and shadow and texture and a, a sense of materiality. And when you've got all those things, you know, you, you can say, I don't like Art Nouveau, but, but the, the beauty of it is still there, right? So, so in modernism, you know, we went to, you know, just let's have these pure glass buildings and those are hard to warm up to, right? You know, so lovability, it would be about the form, but you've got the glass. Well, now with glass, you know, you can do fritted glass, you can get patterns, you can get different colors. There's a much wider toolkit, artist, artistic toolkit available to do that. The things you can infill the panel with are really, you know, going a long way now in terms of, of, of having buildings that that can change. We were talking on a design competition we were doing about using phase change glass over LED panels to get a building that during the day can change color. And then at night you can have LED panels at the same time. Mm. If you don't want the LEDs on during the day, um, it could also be used with a solar panel. So there's sort of all these interesting technological things that are happening. The other is the idea of the computer being able to do you know, CNC, um, um, production of things so that you can do a drawing um, and, and the drawing can have texture and scale to it. In, in the old days, you'd have to have a craftsman that could actually build it. So we could draw it, but if somebody didn't know how to build it, it wouldn't work. Now you can get a, you, you can have a glass facade and you can put a screen in front of it. And that screen doesn't cost a horrible amount of money. You know, a CNC cut screen out of aluminum or steel or whatever it is. Um, and you can get pattern and texture back into the building. And then if you do it out of foam or, or, or you know, um, um, 3D printed panels, you can get a lot of detail and richness that was impossible before. <laughs> so before, what you had to do is you had to pick from the Conier catalog, ca catalog, right? So it's like your mullions are four inches or six inches or eight inches deep, but you didn't really have a lot of flexibility there. Now you know, what you can do with computer aided manufacturing, it just opens an entire new world. And, and so now you could have that 3D printed panel that has a richness to it, that, um, that you don't need the craftsman that, you know, learned in Florence um, and, and did that whole thing. The computer can just build it for you. So I'm so excited about what we can do to raise the lovability level and the humanist level buildings through facades, you know, through mass customization in a sense, right? Do you like working with, um, I guess you're probably going to say it depends on the building type, but, you know, when you look at the facade materials, um, ultra high performance, concrete, phenolic panels, 
aluminum composite material, perforated panels, mesh, dimensional stone, um, uh, structurally glazed, unitized curtain wall, um, laminated railing. Do, do you like, is, is there an advantage in using multiple textures and material types on the facade to create that emotional meaning or does it depend yeah, on the building? I think, I think, um, so you've got the computer's ability to do things like, you know, make a pattern in fritted glass, right? So you're not painting it by hand and then the computer is spraying it on there. That That's a huge in, in increase in sort of the artistic toolkit. Um, what happens though is, is when you can get multiple materials working together, like metal and glass is, is a huge one. Um, sometimes we've worked on projects where the, the installer does glass only and another installer does metal only. The more that they can work together, the more that they can have an integrated solution, the better it is. You know, we work in the Bay Area, <laughs> we work a lot with a group called Walters and Wolf. Yes, uh, I'm familiar and, with them. And they're extraordinary because they've got those two things combined. And when we work with other groups where it's glass only and metal only, then, then oftentimes they both go, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't coordinate with them. I mean, they just don't want to deal with it because the richness you can get when you can get the metal and the glass to work together is, is, is really helpful in terms of emotional meaning. Um, you know, we, we worked on a project with Netflix that had a lot of metal trim on it, a lot of overhangs and a lot of, you know, shadow reveals and things like that. And, and it was great because, you know, we had an integrated solution. Well, they also do precasts. They, they sort of do the whole yeah. exterior skin in one shop. It, it's, it's, that is really helpful when you get that, but yeah. you don't always get that. No, you're right. That, you know, having that exterior wall subcontractor, exterior wall trade contractor can be very helpful. When do you like, when does your office like, are you involved in this part as well? When do you like to bring in that trade subcontractor or partner to to help learn or inform or hear about or push the limits of the process? Do you like to bring them in in schematic? Do you like to bring them in early or later? When do you bring well, them in? Well, what's interesting is in Silicon Valley, um, the clients, the, our technology clients are all very, you know, pro, pro, pro collaboration. So they like to hire the contractor early. They like to have the contractor involved. And, and depending on the subcontractor, if they truly are engaged, it's, it's wonderful to have that early engagement level because, you know, we have an idea of what we want to do. We could draw up whatever we want. And if, and if the, um, the glazing contractor, you know, the, the, the building envelope contractor comes back and says, no, that'll never work. We need to do it this way. Do we redraw all our drawings? Do they redraw them all in, in shop drawings? It's just such a waste of time and energy and creativity. So that when we can get that early involvement, you know, the earlier, the better. I mean, you know, not conceptual design necessarily, but, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you've got this, you know, let's say this screen that you want to do. And it's like, well, how are we going to actually build this thing? And uh, yeah, you don't want to find out in shop drawings that we drew it, we drew it all wrong. <laughs> yeah. For instance, we worked on the chase arena Um mm with M.G. McGrath and M.G. McGrath worked for Enclose and Enclose was involved very early, of course, in the prototyping and, you know, with their advanced design studio, John Fulton was involved with that and others. Um, and that's, that's a good example of, you know, what are the material limits? How can we achieve these ribbon 
these wrapped mm-hmm. ribbon yeah. looks and how proud from that is the building is, is it from the building? So yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear your tech clients. There are very collaborative. Uh, some of the buildings, campus buildings are very, very standard from a glass and glazing point of view in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. you know, ribbon window and precast, but others are very, uh, avant-garde and a little more out of the box. So you get quite well, a We've mix. been breaking that mold. We, 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 we haven't done a super stripy building in a long time. That's good. Um, we've been fortunate. Most of our clients um, don't want to go back there, but Silicon Valley is full of, you know, glass precast, glass precast. Yeah, probably a past thing. Um, thanks for that input on the skin and the facade. Uh, you know, one of the things I like about the being involved in this part of the building industry is that you know, you recognize a building by its skin. I know there's much more to that as an architect um, in terms of the performance of the building, but I love being able to look at kind of the defining aesthetic and say, hey, we got a chance to work on that. And so it's a fun part of, of the building business. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about Burning Man. Ah. I have this burning desire to ask. About, so do, you talked about cultural inclusion and qualitative and that, like, how has this impacted your work? Like, how did you get involved with Burning Man and how has that impacted your work or has it? Uh, I got involved because my daughter and I wanted to go together. And and finally, in 2015, we did. Uh, we went with a friend uh, and stayed in his camp. And um, I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't really completely know what I was getting into um, by going, except that my daughter and I both wanted to go. She was 30 years old at the time. And... Um, so then the next year I came back to same camp and, you know, did some artistic things because it's all about participation, participatory art, about gifting. And, and the first year you go, you don't really understand it. You don't understand the power of it. But then, but then the, if, 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 you're, if you're into it, you want to then come back with gifts, with a contribution. So it started with that. And then um, in 2019, I actually built, designed and built with a group of 30 people, a a, a Burning Man art piece, which was a shade structure that was called um, Andromeda Reimagined. And this was exploring the Andromeda myth. Um, And so as a result, it was a, uh, and that was a little bit of the theme that year was a bit the cosmos. And um, and in fact, the first letter of the city name was Andromeda that year, but uh, uh, it was a female empowerment piece, right? So, so we were looking at the role of women, how 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 women uh, deal with issues, and also is about um, gender and about fluidity and gender as well. So we had a lot of fun with it. Um, it was about thirty feet tall. Um, we we've won uh, several awards for it. Um, it's also interesting that hyper collaborative process of actually building the thing together. Um, we had some interesting moments of tension from time to time, uh, especially on Playa one time about the artwork that was supposed to go inside of it or not go inside of it. And, uh, fortunately we were always able to resolve this in a really good way. Um, so then that led to, in 2020, um, working with another group, I designed a thing called the Museum of No Spectators. 
And that hasn't been built yet, but we had gotten 70 people to volunteer to work on it actually. And um, so we were all set to go. We were all excited. We had started doing fundraising. The thing about uh, uh, the thing about Burning Man art is you're the client and, but, but there's the user group, which was everybody that goes was 70,000 people. Mm-hmm. And, and you're also the builder and you're also the designer, you're everything and the fundraiser. So you've got to do everything. Um, and every piece of art that's out there is a gift. And that's what starts this notion of the range of cultural inclusion. So in that very same year, no, it wasn't that year. It was the year, it was the year before that. But um, uh, I was, I was going to talk about Viarque's orb. So normally architects, there aren't, there aren't a lot of architects that have embraced Burning Man, but Viarque did. And he did this giant orb that he did. Um, that was supposed to be mirrored and it didn't end up being mirrored because the playa dust got to it and it was a dusty mirror. It's a little dystopian looking in itself. And I think he was a little crushed by that, but I thought that it made it more of the playa. It gave it a poetic patina, even though it wasn't his intention and that it was kind of cooler that way. Interesting. Um, It wasn't so perfect. But what happens is that out on the playa, you get a range of things. You get things that go from museum quality art sculpture, you know, sort of architecture pieces as sculpture, all the way down to the sparkly unicorn doll that's been bedazzled with glitter by someone. And on one level, everything on that range, from the super cute to the super serious, all of it is treated with love and is, and is embraced because we know it's a gift. Mm-hmm. Everyone is given this from their heart. This goes back to that notion of of expressing your humanity, right? Everyone is expressing their humanity and there's a respect for that. People still know that there's a qualitative difference between the sparkly unicorn doll and the museum grade piece of art, but they still love them and they still can differentiate. And that's what I call the range of cultural inclusion. And that's also the act of embracing the paradox of quality, versus intent versus, you know, all the different layers rather than resolving it and saying, oh, the museum quality stuff is the good stuff and the other stuff is not good, right? And that notion of exclusion of from, from cultural participation is something that the art world needs to deal with. The mm-hmm. art world is notorious for saying, well, if you're not good enough, you shouldn't try. You shouldn't try to be a painter. You shouldn't try to be a poet you know, because you're not good enough. You didn't go to the right school. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You know, you're not articulate enough, you know, whatever the, the criteria is. Now that exists in the art world because the art world needs to protect what's known as investment grade art. And so there's a business angle to it. So they, they make a bubble and they make it a hard bubble and they say, well, if you can get in this bubble, then you can sell your painting for $10,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars. The moment you do that, you're you're part of an elite group. Now, I love that elite group. Architects are in a very elite group. And I love what we do. And I love, I don't want it to go away. But it's not the only thing on this range of cultural inclusion. We're not quite as important and special as we think we are. And so we should be a little more humble and we should be a little more transparent and we should listen more and we should stop that notion of the public just needs to catch up. I mean, we do need to show vision and we do need to show forward thinking, but it's different than being stubborn, 
I think we're in a stubborn moment. Now across the world, people are doing all kinds of beautiful kind of fluid and interesting projects now. So, so there's a lot of hope, but it's not universal. We're still doing a lot of non-poetic minimalism. That, that gives me hope and hopefully it gives some of the folks listening hope as well. I, to your point earlier, I, I think people realize, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but I think most people realize when they look at a Matisse or a Picasso or a Cezanne, wow, they go. Well, I have a, actually, I have a thought on that. Yeah. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I think we misinterpret what that means. Go ahead. Okay. So, so to me, if you're a client, and the client, and you say, you know, I'm the client, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I want you to design an Art Nouveau building instead of an Art Deco building, if they know the difference even, right? So let's say they know the difference and they want Art Nouveau, right? That is a qualitative, I mean, that's, a, that's, an, that's an emotional, not a qualitative, that, well, that is qualitative, but, but that's an emotional decision to go with a certain style. That is that picking is the beauty is in the eye of the beholder is the sense of, of, I would like this. That's what makes me happy. Now, our job as a designer is to make the best version of that art nouveau thing. Once it's been established, mm -hmm. once you're down that road of, is it good? You're in a whole different world of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It is our job to make really beautiful, proportionally elegant, striking, impactful things. That's not as, as, as um, arbitrary as it seems at all. That's about craft. That's our job. Our job is not to make everything, you know, so unremarkable that there is no, there is no beauty quotient, right? Yeah. So I think we use that wrong. We, 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 we mean, we, we think it means that no one should judge. Well, we have to judge as designers. We have to say we can do better at that Art Nouveau building thing mm -hmm. or whatever the style is that we're using it for. We can make the proportion thinner if it needs to be thinner. We can make it thicker if it needs to be thicker. It might not want to be super thin. I mean, that's a modernist notion that thin is always better. There's a certain proportion that works in other styles or in other things that you might do. And so we have to try to craft that and it's very subjective, but it's not, it's like everybody has not got the same ability to judge that. That's our job. We have to make substantive decisions on aesthetics, but we feel very uncomfortable doing that or talking about it. When I've been in, in juries and school projects, everybody wants to talk about the idea, the concept. And so we get through all that. And then I say, well, you know, I get your idea, but you didn't do a very good job with making a form that's suitified, you know, that, 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 that uh, suggests you're a concept. And then they go, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I say, <laughs> no, I say, no, you've done a bad job. My job is to tell you that my job I... is to make a judgment call that you have failed. Try again. And then they go, well, I don't know what to do. And I go, well, I can help you with that. I can yeah. tell you how, you know, like this thing is awkward, it's heavy, it's whatever it is, it's just not well done. Beauty in the eye of the beholder doesn't mean that you should do mediocre work. Well, I think that's really well said. Thanks for that insight and, and passion and direction. I yeah, that's really good. I I'm that'll that'll stay with me for a while because yeah, you you have to make something that that is beautiful. 
And does, does this get somewhat into that whole concept of the absurdity of beauty that you had talked to yeah, me about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the subjectiveness. But yeah, some things are good and some things aren't, right? I mean, they- Well, our job is we do have to make decisions. We have to craft things. We have to do the best job we can. And yeah. it's not arbitrary. It's subjective, but not arbitrary. And it that's is, a very important distinction. Yeah, thank um, you. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Believe it or not, we're starting to come to the end of our time. I I could go off in a hundred other directions. I I've got way more questions than I than I can even reasonably uh, remember. But um, I think we've hit on a lot of the things that uh, we had mentioned. As we come to our close, um, do you have maybe you've already touched on this, but is there anything you do? Uh, as a person that helps contribute to your unique ability to, to your fascination and motivation to your mindset? Are there any routines or things that you go through that help keep you in that creative artistic mode? Uh, I mean, I think, I think all those things are a balancing act. And so that's why I talk about embracing paradox rather than resolving it. That, that you need those moments and you, you, you have creative triggers. You know, sometimes it, you're going to an art museum triggers creativity. Watching a really moving um, film can, can do that. Reading a poem can do that. And it just triggers, it puts you into an, a different emotional, intellectual balance state, right? It's not that you suddenly just go into this sort of emotional creative mode. It's always a balancing act between those things. And so it's where you are falling on the spectrum at any given time. So, so I think the thing is, is it's important that you, you know, go through a day where you're balancing the things that you're doing and the things that you're feeling. And, and, you know, it is hard to um, go from like working on spreadsheets for hours and then suddenly trying to be creative. You know, you're going to have to do something that sort of resets your your balance equation there um what's nice is when when you feel holistic and you've got all of those things happening at the same time like we're talking but i'm imagining things at the same time right yeah right um yeah no that's good uh are you reading anything of interest right now? Any books you're reading that you'd recommend? Or- I wish I had more time to read. That's probably the one thing about being busy as the, as the firm has grown. I used to read all the time. Uh, there was a moment though, I mean, this was probably 30 years ago. There was a moment where I decided that I'd read quite a bit and I needed to, to, to change the balance equation from reading to acting yep. on things. And so, and so to stop reading so much and then and then design and then commit to things. And so professionally, what I started doing then was I started doing uh, design competitions if I wasn't getting the satisfaction um, in the office uh, that I was working for at the time. Because that was before I had my own office with my partners. Yeah. And, and so uh, now I read less. But what happens is we're bombarded with all of this information. So if I count reading medium articles on online, which are extraordinary, 
oftentimes or reading people's Facebook posts or, you know, and so those posts sometimes go to links to articles. I'm reading a lot of smaller things um, in social media and online, um, but not sitting down and reading a novel for, you know, like three hours at a stretch. That, yeah. That's pure joy to do that. Yeah. I just don't have the time to do it. So, so I, I have been reading a lot of things, but in a different way than I think of as reading. That's, that's well said. Yeah, me too. Uh, I want to touch on it before we adjourn. Kind of a point you're making here indirectly. Um, I, I get to that point. I have gotten to that point now where I said, am I consuming more content than I'm creating? Yes. Mm. So mm. what I want to do is I want to be a content creator, not mm. a content consumer. I want to consume appropriate content to help contribute to the content creation. But I'm in a place at 61 years old where I, I want to create as much content as I can that hopefully will put some value into the system, into life that people can benefit from. So I do read to relax and disengage at times, but like you, I catch a lot of small things. I, I am trying to read some books now, use mostly fiction instead mm -hmm. of nonfiction. And um, yeah, the whole content creation, which is to your point about watercolors and poetry and, you know, artistic expression uh, through architecture or whatever, um, that is content creation. And I think that's important. So, well, that dynamic, you know, that paradox between the production of culture and the consumption of culture is, yeah. is really important. And that balance is part of like that day. So if I spend a day consuming only, I feel a little one-sided and, <laughs> and if I get exhausted, if I'm only producing all day long too, right. Because it takes a lot of emotional energy. Oh my gosh. To produce, to create. It does. Right. And, and people think, you know, Oh, you just kind of do it. You know, you just sit down there and draw, but it, it takes a lot of energy to draw. So um, that balance equation, though, I think is what's part of healthy communities, healthy people. Um, there's this concept of creative communities and a creative community is where you have a balance of the production and consumption of culture. And Burning Man is that kind of balancing. Everyone is participating. Everybody's engaged in some way, even if it's just the creative dress you're wearing, um, you have a chance to participate. And, and even when it's a small participation, that engagement is huge. The sense of community it creates, the sense of, of, of part, you know, connection between people is much higher when, when a mat, I mean, the thing about Burning Man that was the most impressive thing for me was not that I had an artistic epiphany, which a lot of people do who aren't in the arts, but that the joy of seeing 70,000 people being self-expressive. <laughs> I went, I went to uh, um, the Monterey Design Conference, I think I was telling you about that before, um, with, with one of our publicists and we were talking about Burning Man and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I, and I said to her, you know, the thing is we, we, we claim that we're a creative profession, you know, that we use our imagination on a daily basis and that, you know, we're that, those kinds of people. But look around, we're all dressing within 3% of each other. There's no <laughs> self-expression in this group. We all look the same. Interesting. I mean, you know, that might they might we not might not all be white, but we all still dress within three percent. I said if I put on a fish jacket and stood out, everyone would think I was nuts, even though we're supposed <laughs> to be creative, right? 
And I do have a fish jacket and I wear it from time to time. And, and, but I have to gauge what group I'm wearing it with so that they don't think I'm completely nuts. <laughs> and, but why can't we do that? You know, yeah. why can't, why, why must we be so conformist? So when you, when you take that and you say you're empowering people to be self-expressive, the shocking thing is they become very sweet and kind and thoughtful to each other. Mm. Interesting. And that's Burning Man. Interesting. So my Burning Man thing is Burning Man, you know, aside from what everybody thinks Burning Man is or isn't or was or wasn't, was for me, Burning Man encourages you to embrace community and kindness through participatory art. I see. Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good definition. I like that. And art has that power to create community and kindness. Community and kindness. That's a good place to close. Um, hey. John, your time is valuable and I couldn't be more appreciative than you being willing to share it here. Um, we will put all the information in the show notes, the summary of this discussion, the links to your art, the links to the poetry, the links to form four, uh, you're on LinkedIn, you're on Twitter. Are you on Instagram as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Pretty much on all of that. We'll put the links to all those things in the show notes. Um, any final word before we sign off? No, it's been a pleasure though. Thanks. Um, um, yeah, I've enjoyed this. I've learned a lot and I thank you for uh, educating us and inspiring us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. We are signing off now. John, thanks again. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. Have a great day.